Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Roger, it's Brian. Look, I know this sounds a little far-fetched, but I want you to meet me every night between October the 21st to December the 18th at 7.30 p.m. at a place called the Menier Chocolate Factory in London Bridge. Sundays at 3 p.m., and 7.30 p.m. People are going to watch us. A bit like a zoo or whatever. And I'll give you a cut. If you do want to find out more, look at the internet. Manyachocolatefactory.com. Speak soon. Bye. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you want to Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. crazy youngsters and welcome to part two of episode 62 of chart music i'm your host i'll need them but fuck me it's all about my guests rock expert david stubbs rock and taylor parks oh yeah and let me tell you dear boys and girls we are rubbing our cakey little hands with glee at the thought of ripping into this episode taylor i suggested we do 1977 and i left it up to you to pick out an episode why did you go for this one well of all the 1977 episodes that were available to us i think this one was the most 1977 Mm. i say the real 1977 yes yeah yeah that was my feeling also i concur and and having lived it and lived it in that kind of pre-critical phase this was definitely my 1977 it's early November, the record industry's got its shit together, so there's a lot of monsters of rock and pop lumbering about, wanting to cram that record token in six weeks' time into their gaping maw. Yeah, and you get the feeling that, you know, everybody's wondering if this whole kind of punk hurricane has subsided, perhaps, and things can get back mm. to, uh, you know, the old normal. Yeah, get the flares back on again. Yeah, yeah. All right then, pop craze youngsters, it is time to go way back. Back to November the 3rd of 1977. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's edition of Top of the Pops! It's 
ten past seven on Thursday, November the 3rd, 1977, and Top of the Pops is into its fifth year under the reign of Robin Nash, who is still dividing his time between our weekly fizzy pop treat and producing the Generation Game. Oh, chaps, what a shame he didn't mix the two, eh? We could have had every band and artist in the top 30 rundown going by on a conveyor belt with, <laughs> you know, the Stranglers being portrayed as cuddly toys. toys. Yeah, That'd yeah. be fucking brilliant, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is purest top of the pops to my mind, isn't it? Gone mm. is the album section. Gone is the tip for the top slot. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Breakers and the interviews and the Star Bars and Jonathan King's Entertainment USA. All that shit is years away or years behind us. Yeah. There's no rammel. There's no fripper. This is purest top of the pops, isn't it? And it's it's not going to change any time soon, no, is it? No, no, no. If it ain't broke, don't twat about with it, as my mum used to say. Over on Radio 1, on the other hand, change is definitely afoot. Because the BBC, after three years of merging Radio 1 and 2 together during the daytime in the spirit of purse-string-related minginess, have finally decided to start separating them out once again. Meaning that by this time next year, David Hamilton will have been finally released into his natural habitat of Radio 2, Andy Peebles and Kid Jensen are going to have their own evening slots, and the talent pool of Radio 1 is about to be enlarged. That was really important, wasn't it, chaps? It was kind of important, really, as a listener at the time. There were certain things that were almost given a deliberate legitimacy via kind of being broadcast through the lucidity of, you know, Radio 2. But I always liked the fact that with Radio 1 that you just had that kind of sort of gauze of static interference, I think, you know, it's an added dimension, really, to the whole music. Yes. That's how we consume the music, you know. When that goes missing, it's actually a little bit weird. It's not quite the same. You really have to strain to listen to the music, don't mm. you, mm. back then? Yeah, you know, it, it was kind of coming over the phone to an extent. Yeah, which is why smart producers would, uh, before they signed off on the final mix of a single, would put it through a shitty speaker or go out and listen to it in their car just to make sure that it was going to sound good in the circumstances in which it was mostly going to be heard. Yeah. I mean, if you're listening to Radio 1 right now, you're being treated to Edmundo Ross and his Latin American orchestra, followed by an hour and a half of David Allen's Country Club before you can get to John Peel. And, chaps, no one ever talks about this, but surely one of the factors in the pop explosion of the Aventis has to be the fact that bands of that ilk were finally going to get a fair go on Radio 1 in the early evening, which was then natural habitat mm. all of a sudden bands like xtc and x-ray specs you know th- there's actually going to be a place on them on radio one that you know isn't after the watershed and bedtime yeah absolutely i mean you know it's weird to think that you know there was well, it was affected or might as well have been dead air throughout the evening right through until whosoever mm. was listening to um john peel almost like the kind of gulf between the idea of pop and counterculture was um you know was, was, that was that was duly duly marked out um so yeah i mean yeah. that was a massive difference when there's suddenly um you know this kind of sort of gradual gradient you know from daytime into the evening and culminating in john peel yeah and i think that encourages a kind of feed between the so-called underground and the mainstream. Because to me, as a nine-year-old, the idea of stopping up until 10 o'clock to listen to John Peel, I might as well have tried to stop up to watch open university programmes about physics. It just just wasn't going to happen, man. By 10 o'clock, I'm spark out. The only time I'd do it for football was I'd, I'd be sent to bed 
But then my dad yeah. whistled down for me when Match of the Day came on on Saturday. So it kind of worked for football, but there's no way he was going to whistle me down to listen to John Peel, you know, <laughs> in the school <laughs> night. So, hey, David, he's playing a whole side of Tangerine Dream. <laughs> hey, David, the snivelling shits are in session. <laughs> so your host tonight is Peter Powell, who has just joined Radio 1 after three and a half years at Radio Luxembourg, most recently as their breakfast show host. He's been penciled in to take over Simon Bates' Sunday morning show, giving Pig Wanker General the opportunity to depose Tony Blackburn and assume his rightful mantle of King of the Housewives. That's not going to happen for another 10 days, but the BBC are clearly so taken by their new sign-in that they're giving him his first ever appearance on Top of the Pops, even though he hasn't played one record on Radio 1 yet. So, chaps, Peter James Bernard Powell, to give him his full name, very much the new kid in town, even though he's already put in a brief shift in on Radio 1 in 1972 when he held down the Saturday afternoon slot, but... By immediately sticking him on top of the pops, they obviously think he's up to the job. It's, it's like it's got this kind of debut appearance smell about it, this whole, whole yes. appearance, hasn't it? You can practically see him psyching himself up just before the intro. You know, energy, Peter, energy. And he yes. just kind of overdoes it, you know. You can just imagine him being quite ingratiating around the Radio 1 offices. I can imagine him making Simon Bates' tea for him and Simon Bates letting him, or even going out <laughs> on coffee runs for Dave Lee Travis and saying nothing when he doesn't get reimbursed. All that kind of thing. It's a sort of wet niceness about him <laughs> back then i mean as a kid i mean at that age i still ranked everyone all, all males anyway according to hardness and i reckon he'd been right. about the 12th hardest in our class theoretically but that's only on imagining how we're doing a fight because he never actually would right and i kind of stuck with this idea of his essential niceness but um to be honest after watching this episode i've now busted him down to creep oh yeah right well look oh you sent um, a little little crib sheet before we recorded this. Yes. Like, okay, this is what we're going to talk about. Uh, yes. Next to Peter Powell, it said, this is his first Top of the Pops appearance. How does he get on? Mm. And I thought, yeah, well, combination of institutional cowardice and knowing the right people. I, <laughs> I mean, fucking poached from Radio Luxembourg. Yes. He should have been poached like an egg. <laughs> a dirty egg. Mm. I mean, you, what a wanker. You know what I mean? It's, you look at this non-stunt kite mogul. Uh, I mean, look, I've met so many young men like this, like privileged, rather corny lads with no particular mm. talents who manage not to be wankers. So he's just got no excuse at all. Mm. It's, it's barely credible that someone like this ever really existed when you see him now mm. there's a lot of modern equivalents but the modern equivalents aren't quite like this right no. with that crushingly affected like fake cherubic energy you know mm. Mm. actually more like a biblically accurate cherub <laughs> and that obnoxious upbeat uh, cheerleading for everything mm. and therefore yeah. nothing mm. you know is mm. like he does the intro you see him yeah for a second completely just still and silent, awaiting his cue, you know, and then there's a deep breath, suddenly a fixed grin, and... Hi everyone. Yeah. Well, this like week's decision of top of the pops. Yeah, that's it. It's like a crossroads type moment, isn't it? Or acorn antiques, that kind of thing. <laughs> Just before the yeah. action begins. Yeah. So give away. Rearing up. He's like a jack in the box, but with a mm. rotting human foot on the <laughs> end of the spring. He's so <laughs> unreal, but at the same time, he's so 
basic mm. and mundane mm. and mm. undistinguished, you know, and banal evil spreads out from him like a smell. Yeah. Christ Almighty, what must his real personality be like, you know, mm. if this is what he puts on for the camera? Mm. Like he's got his Radio 1 T-shirt on, lest yeah. we doubt his commitment to being a company man. It's like he's been signed by a football club, isn't it? He's got his Radio 1 shirt on. He's like, what a shame he's not holding up a Radio 1 scarf as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's got that sort of like little muscle in his face. He's like He's sort of physically fit in the days when when muscle-bound meant someone who did 50 sit-ups a day and ate bananas, you know what I mean? <laughs> and he's got that, that insincere dimpled, youthful, pseudo-charm, you know. But his mm. eyes are blazing with this pure, empty ambition, mm. you know. And we're mm. still in a period where the best way to appeal to everyone is to be nauseatingly ingratiating and oily, you know. Mm. And it gives me the creeps, except that he takes it so far that it's yeah. entertaining, right? Mm. It's like a trip to the reptile house. Mm. You know, like <laughs> makes makes your skin crawl, but you can't take your eyes off it. Mm. You know? in, in a weird and horrible sort of way, he is on a kind of different energy level to everyone else, but that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, he's kind of a paradox, really. He's at once vacuous and yet full of piss and shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, Peter Powell is from Stourbridge, <laughs> yes. which is proper black country, and there's mm. not the faintest trace of Midlands in those vowels. No. Oh, no, no. Hi. I mean, it's like, it's like he's from Malvern or something. Mm. That's a <laughs> bit, bit of an in-joke for Midlands people. But look, I mean, like, I've lived in London. I've lived in fucking jellied eel country for 30 <laughs> years, and most of the time now I sound like I'm flogging stolen crockery off a market stall. <laughs> uh, but... Even so, I still, to this day, inadvertently pronounce a rogue W after every letter O because, you know, I haven't forgotten my roots. There's something wrong here. It's like he's completely untrustworthy on every level. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And also, did we leave him out of the Russian doll? Yes, we did. I think we did, didn't you? I think in between Kevin Keegan and the old sailor mm. is where you'd find Powell. Mm. We've seen Andy Peebles and Simon Parkin making their debuts on Top of the Pops during our chart music odyssey, and they both had an absolute mare, but Powell's arrived here fully formed, hasn't he? This is the Peter Powell that you're going to get right through the Aventis and beyond. It certainly is. He's hit the ground running, hasn't he? Yeah, like a saw. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you had a competition to decide who's the worst pal, you wouldn't actually feel confident about putting a bet on the winner. That's how bad Peter Powell is. Mm. Fucking Grant Bovey placeholder. But I do, Fucking. Yeah, I, I do... <laughs> <laughs> I do take your point, Al, you know, that it's almost like, you know, come on, guys, it's nearly the 80s, dealy bopper time. <laughs> yeah, the 80s is right, mm, David. Mm, definitely. <laughs> you know, this notional 80s, which is going to be lots of white trousers. Radio Luxembourg is definitely the feeder club to Radio 1 right now, because would you care to take a guess who Luxie have drafted in as Powell's replacement in the breakfast show? Uh, ooh. Mike Reed. Mike Reed. Oh, wow. Yeah. The other thing of note is he automatically becomes the youngest member of the current presenter pool on top of the pops. Mm. At the age of... Well, pal, 26. Uh. So-called kid, Jensen, 27. Uh. Edmonds, 28. Really? Good grief. Travis, 32. 
32. Blackburn, 34. Ed Stewart, 36. Ed Stewart's doing Top of the Pops in 1977. Fucking hell. And, of course, Savile, 51. Oh, they're all such babies. The BBC globe fades and we are immediately confronted by Powell in a Radio 1 t-shirt who bellows a welcome and throws us straight into the top 30 rundown accompanied by Turn to Stone by ELO. We've covered the Electric Light Orchestra loads of times on chart music and this, their 10th single, is the follow-up to Telephone Line, which got to number 8 in two non-consecutive weeks in June of 1977. It's also the lead cut from their 7th LP, Out of the Blue, which came out the other week. A double LP which was written in a fortnight by Jeff Lynne in a rented cottage in the Swiss Alps and has already notched up 4 million pre-orders and instantly went platinum. The single entered the charts at number 43 last week and this week it soared 16 places to number 27. Now, before we let David into rave on about the ELO, oh. let's get the chart pictures out of the Ooh, way first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a few in here, aren't they? Say what you see, chaps. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mary Mason. I, I think I thought I had a photographic memory of this era. I, there wasn't a memory, Mary Mason. This is this is bullshit. This has been photoshopped in for some obscure reason. There was no Mary Mason. This is a lie. Angel of the morning. I mean, Giorgio Moroder. Oh yeah, that photo of Giorgio. Oh my God, it's like hideous Euro creation. Mm. You know, you, it's beyond the imaginings of the fast show, and of course, flanked by two of the sultriest stunners 1977 yeah. had to offer. Yeah, oh, but ended in this- an A. Oh, yeah, yeah, stun as. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And, you know, they've got those huge tinted glasses, that medallion and that kind of right of hair. I mean, and he makes D- Dave Lee Travis look like Howard Devoto, doesn't yes. he? I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's just like ultra Hersu Alpha. And yet, you say that from this body and this mind sprang the reinvention of pop. This yeah. very year, Donna Summer, the, you know, it came from this body. Yeah, it's, this uh, he's thing. entitled to all the lovelies he can get his hands on. Well, that's that's true. That's true. Yeah. Oh, Ram Jam. Now, Ram Jam to me a yes. pure nineteen seventy three. I'm sure that midnight and New Year's Eve they were just they literally and physically expired. And that yes. was the end of them. <laughs> none more nineteen seventy seven than Ram Jam with the possibility of Wild Willie Barrett. Well, there's there's the wrong lineup of Roxy music. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah, it's nice to see Brian Eno rejoining Roxy music, ditching all that ambient stuff. Yeah, that's yes. great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's those pictures from the first LP where Brian Ferry looks like Doctor and the Medic. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> yes. and Phil Manzanera playing his guitar like a World War One fighter ace flying his biplane. Yes. Fucking great. It's the re-release of Virginia Plains. Ah, uh, okay. Well, fair enough then. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah, impressively enough. accurate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, well. There's... Um, Carlos Santana, uh, suddenly remembering his recently deceased dog in the middle of a blowjob. I put down, he's looking like he's trying to remember where he put his car keys while he's being given a nosh. (laughs) We we got to the nosh bit in the end, though, Taylor. Great minds think alike. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's the Baron Knights uh, beaming with flinty glee as they hear that the charges have been dropped for lack of evidence yet again. Uh, (laughs) The the Carpenters' spectral forms Mm. uh, wearing those shirts so white that they don't actually exist in the visible spectrum. (laughs) It's like it looks like the Carpenters live from Three Mile Island. (laughs) The Stranglers 
pictured in front of precisely the appropriate shade of dirty rancid green mm. like a 1970s labor exchange toilet wall <laughs> smeared with <laughs> itinerant mucus um and uh david soul looking just ever so slightly concerned about the moustache he's grown uh mm. officially recorded as the second ever standalone moustache grown by a blonde man um <laughs> And he is, you know, he's right to be concerned, um, since you asked Brian McLean of love. Um, <laughs> oh, and status quo, all leathered and mustachioed and unhealthy, yes. uh, looking like the Albanian secret police in yes. about 1988, <laughs> inquiring as mm. to where you got that swing out sister record. <laughs> <laughs> this could well be the uh, the debut appearance of that photo of the Bee Gees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, look how unscratched it is. Mm. It's pristine. <laughs> I don't think the pistols are doing themselves any favours, you know. They're no. Rather slovenly and yobbish and uncouth. Yes. You know, in, a, in a kind of not really quite punk way. As if unless it's some sort of meta sort of yobbishness. Mm. I suspect John Lydon, maybe he's being meta-yobbish. Meta I think Steve Jones is being actual yobbish. Then you've got mm. Sid Vicious bent over like an untethered punk monkey. It's uh, yes. just an odd image all told, really. Yeah. So, dear boys, it's late 1977, and we are at peak ELO, don't you think? Mm. They got off to a good start in the early 70s, but they became more popular in America than they were over here. There was a bit of a brief lull in the mid-70s, but they roared back in 1976, and, and here they are following up an LP that sold 5 million copies last year, and uh, and this is the opening shot out of that blue, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I can I can sense pricey already, kind of getting sort of angry in advance, you know, as I yes. sort of mu- muse. Yeah, his pricey prongs <laughs> are vibrating right, yes, as I muse upon ELO. I mean, I would only say I, I don't think this particular thing is their finest. I remember it vividly from the time, and it sort of trundles along in a sort of clapped-out boogie wagon type sort of device. And you can imagine poor old Beethoven lying there thinking, I rolled over for this. <laughs> but the thing is, I mean, I, perhaps I'm a little bit over, overall a bit unfair to ELO because of like. When this came out, I mean, I had a sort of Peter Powell-type universal appreciation for absolutely anything if it was pop. And I'd consider this first-class opal fruits for the ears. (laughs) Then, of course, a few months later, when I gained critical consciousness, they were one of of quite a few groups I felt I had to renounce, definitely. Mm. I probably actually read somewhere about how they celebrated their own artifice and nodded along and thought, (laughs) hmm, that's probably a bad thing. Yes, yes. (laughs) And then the worst thing was... I've mentioned before, my younger brother getting into something didn't help at all, you know, because I always had to be one up. When he got his chipper, I got my chopper. Mm. When he got into ELO, it sort of behooved me to step up a notch. Um, so I think perhaps that has kind of coloured my appreciation of ELO over the years, in fairness. It was your brother's music. Yeah, exactly. Uh. So this album would have been ringing through the Stubbs household round about this time. Well, yeah, it was actually, uh, or, or over the next couple of years. It was a slight delay, really, because it was more 78, 79. You know, I was, and it, it was yeah. the, the great ELO versus Faust wars raged in a certain part <laughs> yeah. of Barrack and Elmet. Yeah, it's a funny one, this, isn't it, this record? It's like, for me, there, there's two ELOs, and I like one and not the other, mm. you know. Two ELOs, sometimes in the same song. Mm. There's the, the chunky... Mm lumbering beard and pint of mild ELO. It's like the ELO that's very specifically a man from the West Midlands in a very expensive recording studio, as if it were the shed in his garden 
in Small Heath, where he tinkers with yeah. his 1962 Triumph Bonneville. <laughs> it's, it's basically it's driving music, isn't it? You know, you got you got your tinted glasses on and you're mm. driving on an A road, mm. sort of heading for Spaghetti Junction or you know, full of beef burgers, or heading for um, Borton on the Water to see the Model Village, perhaps. You know, always worth a visit. Mm. It's good because it's it, it's got a Model Village yeah. of the town of Borton on the Water including the model village in it <laughs> then inside that you can just about see another model Fuck. Village. if you keep going you come to no. the smallest object in the universe and, and then inside that is the lead singer for air supply um <laughs> i bet the people who made fantastic voyage must have felt like right cunts when they found out about this so there's that elo there's like the you know the driving gloves elo and then there's the other elo yes. who sound celestial and otherworldly, you know. Like, there's no friction or gravity in this music. That's the best ELO. The ELO that sounds like yeah. the music is genuinely being beamed from the ELO spaceship off the record covers, you know. That spaceship which looked like the game Simon. Yes. <laughs> you know. Um, and this one is a mix of both. It's like there's some really lovely textures in it, mm. um, just sheets of blue perspex you know like which is absolutely my elo and then there's also a lot of smoothly produced clatter which does nothing for me you know it's got that river dance rhythm in it for a start and that's always a bit suspect in records from the 70s just because of the prog associations Mm. the only two 70s records i can think of that have got that rhythm which i like are one of these days by pink floyd and the seven inch of the doctor who theme uh, other than that, it's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a bad yeah. judge because just as yeah. uh, just as David had his brother, I'd, ELO was the kind of music that my not especially musical dad thought was really impressive. You know, like it was a, a, a great achievement. Right. It's not that I ever resented my dad or his musical taste or anything like that. I just felt that those priorities and those concepts of what music should be like or what was good music were not mine and should be rejected and rebelled against you know i thought that was what people who don't really get music just assumed was obvious right that this great production Mm. and this uh achievement was was you know that this was the pinnacle of what music could be and i thought Mm. that's not true but i hear it now it's all right i mean it's ripping off the beatles a lot um and Queen, mm. which for English rock is pretty base level, you know. But it's okay. It's a bit of a yeah. a carvery meal, but it's all <laughs> yes. right. You know, I can hear it and not implode. Yeah. When I watched this episode for the first time in ages, and uh, this came up, it's like I don't know this song. And then all of a sudden, of course, the chorus tips up, and it's like, oh yeah, there we go. I, I know you now. ELO very good at choruses. Yeah. Well, that's the trouble you see. So in the in the great ELO versus Faust wars, the whole one of the great maxims of Krauss rock is that you eschew you know uh, choruses. You know, there isn't. Yeah. You know, oh God, yeah. You know, you plough motoric on. So you know that would have been a pointer against them for a start. Their kind of right. insidious facility for a chorus. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, there's, there's um, a compilation has just come out um, on Cherry Red, and it's called something like 
Boston, um, and it's a three-disc mm-hmm. anthology of Brom Rock, you know, from 66 to 74. And, I mean, wow. you know, whilst there's some distinctly variable stuff on it, you do realise just what a kind of civic force, you know, Birmingham stroke Wolverhampton was and how much it actually mm. produced. And yet, at the same yeah. time, as implied in the title of that collection, there's possibly always been this very slight cultural cringe around Birmingham. It's almost like there's a sort of built-in kind of modesty, in a sense, you know, despite, you know, the kind of strength of the achievements, you know, or perhaps, you know, in terms of it being sort of taken seriously and highly regarded, you know, you think that places like Liverpool and Manchester have been a lot more exalted. But in terms of, you know, quantity, at least, and especially in that era, but, you know, Birmingham and Wolverhampton produced a great deal, you know, mm. and they probably did more to fill out the early 70s than like, your Liverpool's and your Manchester's did. Yeah, but unlike Liverpool and Manchester, uh, the area has an inferiority complex. Like the cultural cringe, like I say, yeah, definitely. The UK are finally catching on to ELO by this point, aren't they? I mean, a couple mm. of years ago, they were playing Madison Square Garden and then coming back here and struggling to get 300 people into De Montfort all in Leicester. But right. a year from now, they're going to be doing eight nights at Wembley Arena with a big fuck-off spaceship, which was clearly nicked from Funkadelic. Mm. Yeah, and uh, and being introduced mm. by fucking Tony Curtis of all people. I, I remember that footage. Yeah, the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Huh? Yeah, Tony yeah. Curtis, man, he was well up for the Midlands, wasn't he? ELO, yeah. um, Debbie Ashby, and that's it. <laughs> but that's enough. I watched that at the time, and I was really bitter when I saw him saying that, and I lost a lot of respect for Tony Curtis that had really? built up during the Persuaders because Faust were obviously the greatest band in the world. Mm. Like how, how he didn't see that. What did know. Roger Moore have to say about ELO? He, he kept very quiet about that, didn't he? Yes, he kept his own counsel. Yeah. Yeah. So the following week, Turn to Stone nudged up three places to number 24, stayed there the following week, and then took three weeks to crawl its way to number 18, its highest position. Oh dear, Bodzil. But the follow-up, Mr. Blue Sky, got to number six in February of 1978, kicking off a run of three singles from the LP, getting to number six that year, and out of the blue would go on to sell over 10 million copies worldwide. Mr. Blue Sky, David, where do you stand on that? Inner noise. Ooh. Lovely. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Love football? Can't wait for the season to hit its stride? Salivate over Super Sunday. Well, this podcast is probably not for you. 
If, however, you're tired of the hype, but part of you still loves the game, you could try the famous sloping pitch from Great Big Owl. With Chris England, Nick Hancock and guests. The famous sloping pitch. It's a podcast about football, not market traders. This is a modern world. This is a modern world. What kind of fool do you think I am? You think I know nothing of a modern world. Before turn to stone and the canned applause even has a chance to fade out, we're hitting the face with a Rickenbacker being played with fire and skill. <laughs> and the first performance of the evening, The Modern World by The Jam. We've covered The Jam in Chart Music 15, and this, their third single, is the follow-up to All Around the World, which got to number 13 in August of this year. It's also the lead cut from their new LP, This Is The Modern World, which comes out a fortnight after tomorrow, a mere six months after their first In The City. The single, which has been re-recorded for Radio Airplay, came out early last week and it's already crashed into the charts at number 38 and they've been rushed into the top of the pop studio. Well, boys, this this really is the only thing that's even remotely punk on this episode because, you know, even now, just after 11 months to the day of the Grundy incident, which was punk's coming out party, it's still not bossing top of the pops about, is it? No. I mean, here's a list of all the punky appearances that have occurred on Top of the Pops so far in 1977. And by punk, I mean bands who look as if they're personally angry with you for making them do this sort of (laughs) shit. So, The Jam, In The City, 19th of May. The Stranglers, Go Buddy Go, 26th of May, 9th of June and 23rd of June. The Saints, This Perfect Day, 14th of July. The Sex Pistols, Pretty Vacant, also the 14th of July. First chant music we ever did, David. Mm-hmm. The Jam, All Around the World, 21st of July, 4th of August, 18th of August. Television, Prove It, 6th of August. The Rods, Do Anything You Want to Do, oh, yeah. 11th of August and 25th of August. The Stranglers, Something Better Change, 18th of August. The adverts, Gary Gilmore's Eyes, 25th of August. The Boomtown Rats, looking after number one, also the 25th of August. Elvis Costello, Red Shoes, 8th of September. Generation X, Your Generation, 15th of September. The Stranglers, No More Heroes, 22nd of September. Tom Robinson Band, 2468 Motorway, 27th of October. And the Sex Pistols, Holidays in the Sun, also on the 27th of October. So, no clash, buzzcocks or damned in 1977. But for Top of the Pops, the jam were always in reception. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I was just purely a pop-crazed younger at this time, and so... Punk to me would have meant the Pistols, obviously, the Stranglers and the Jam, essentially. Yeah. The Clash didn't really have a look in because, of course, the Clash didn't do Top of the Pops. Uh, it was no. uh, you know, out of their militancy and what have you. But this cut through, this really spoke to me because I think 
For kids my age, so I'm, what, about 15, just turned 15. I mean, punk wasn't really about bondage and Mohicans or any of that King's Road stuff. I mean, it, it's about the no. rise of the school kids, and it's kind of been in the air for a while. We've been kind of ready for this. This look, you know, this whole attitude's been simmering in us since, well, that's 1973. I mean, my first inkling of punk was in the Beano in Dennis the Menace, Dennis and the Din Makers, if you remember, oh, with yeah. Nasher on the drums. Oh, yeah, pioneers. That's right. Walter, of all people, on bass. And um, that was my yeah. kind of early, that, that something was about to change. And there was a little, I was a little bit off it as well, but there'd always been that kind of surliness and gobbing and repurposing a school uniform into something that's sartorially rebellious, you know, big ties, top buttons undone, Oxford bags, stacked shoes. Ugh. Yeah. And it was weird, but also, you know, these 70s things, because we all know, I mean, nobody was immaculately dressed in punk. There were loads of flares and centre no. partings and what have you. Mm. But for me, you know, the essence of punk was Kevin Burke from our class 4S knocking on the staff room door, yeah. Big Bill, French master, answering it. And Kevin Burke and his flares and a safety pin through his nose, shouting, punk rock! at him and running off. <laughs> punk rock! <laughs> what was he into? What, what bands were he into? Oh, oh he didn't. David? He just knew about punk rock. He'd heard about it. Right. He understood the essential delinquency of it. I bet he'd heard about it in Cheeky Weekler. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it, I mean, there's a lot in this. It's about school, you know, and the song and his teachers and stuff like that. And so there is this schoolish attitude. They're like sort of rogue prefects here, hijacking the school disco. It's got that kind of energy about it really you know we don't know anyone tell us what's right and wrong yeah right mm. I, I do like also um you know rick buckler on drums yes have I, t- have I told you my rick buckler related joke go on have i you want to hear it yes yeah, really yeah the jam one yes please all oh, right okay because you know it's fantastic and i don't think it it just doesn't get the appreciation for some reason it's never had i mean people have been left cold by it but you you wait until you hear it it's because oh, it's, it it's, like it's going to be brilliant so <laughs> I, I, yeah. Well, I th- that's that, that is the promise. Yeah, go on, yeah, go on. I'm, I'm ready so, to laugh. Let me put my tea down before it goes through me. I nose. know. If, if you've got an aisle nearby, be ready to roll in it. Um, <laughs> so anyway, the joke is, if I were to open an estate agent, oh no, we heard it. it. No, oh no, oh, no is that was, well. Sorry, I'm. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's the only one I have got. Okay. Every time the jump comes up, you do that joke, David. Oh, oh. and Taylor beat you to it. Well, are you sure? Come on, let's hear it again. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm going right, to laugh okay. just as Those, hard I think, this time. E- exactly. Even with all of this, I think you're going to Go laugh. On. If I were to open an estate agent, I'd call it Butlers and only do business with people who got the joke. <laughs> oh, there we go exactly that is exactly i'm sure that's happening that's, that's resounding up and down the country among the pop crazed youngsters you're raising some very good points here shit joke not with a standing because mm. you know me i would become a massive jam head but yeah. but not now not here because you're 15 years old you're um yeah. you, you're fucking leery aren't you oh damn it, yeah and surly yeah 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 but for me the modern world meant forest sabutio 2000 AD, actually being liked by the teachers and trying to get seven fizz bombs into my mouth in one go on the way to school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the modern world was fucking mint Mm. for me. If I'd have written this song, the song would have been called This Is The Modern World, Hurrah. Mm. I always felt that my younger brothers got life just that bit better. All these kind of things just suddenly opened up a bit um, and they had a better quality Mm. of life just two or three years down the line than I did, definitely. Because, you know, there was empty desperation, really, as far as I was concerned. The only other thing I'd say is um, I do, well, again, once again, I mean, politely received, you know, by the audience. You can actually see them taking their cue from the floor managers who applaud. You can actually see them turn heads as the floor managers clearly make, oh, I'm sorry, enthusiasm, enthusiasm. Not too much enthusiasm, but that's, sort no. of, I mean, that's always a thing. Not too much no enthusiasm, spitting. no spitting. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing them do in the city on Mark 
the Mark Boland Granada TV show uh, with my granite and just thinking that they look like the cunts from the secondary school up the road who mm. walk through our playground thinking there was summer. Mm. <laughs> the surliness and the snottiness is just coming off Paul Weller mm. and to a lesser extent Bruce Foxton. But Rick Buckler really lets the side down when they do a close-up on him and he just gives the camera this gormless smile. Yeah, he just has that kind of, look, I don't give a shit, I'm the hardest kid in the class, you know. I mean, He's also got a ring of padding around his symbols. did you see that? Yeah. So he can give them a proper thrashing without, you know, a, a pissing off the neighbours. Paul Weller looks angry and leery. Rick Buckler just looks confident in his hardness. Mm. I never felt scared of Bruce, though. He looks like a man flying through turbulence, you know what I mean? He's always got that slightly <laughs> look on his face. And it has to be said that, the jam are not sharp dressed men at the moment are they they've got button down shirts but it, you know if one of them buttons pop they'd be on the verge of being condor collars hmm, hmm. the camera stays above the ankle but i'm pretty sure there's going to be a bit of swing in those trousers oh definitely yeah but that was just right that was just perfect because that's how all those kids looked in that old you know fourth form class photos if they'd look too smart too immaculate we wouldn't have related to them and also i love the the grange hill image hmm. Of the early yes. jazz. It's like what, Ripper Weller. <laughs> yeah. Whatever the logic of dressing in off the peg suits as a reaction against punk mm. or, you know, a reaction against, like, it's sort of utilitarian workers' protest yeah. against bohemianism, you know. Mm. The aesthetics of it are great. Like, jet black suits and not even that mohair suit, so the light just disappears into them. Pure black suits, gleaming white shirts washed by his mum. Uh, Jet black ties, gleaming white socks, and fire engine red guitars. Um, it's such a strong, vivid look, you know. Although it's slightly spoiled here by Bruce turning up with the white bass, because it always looks wrong when their guitars aren't colour matched. Mm. Um, mm. The, the rest of the image is so so perfect and symmetrical. No, you, you have to have the same colour guitars. Come on, you're supposed to have an eye for detail. It's a mod thing. It is much better than the other Top of the Pops appearance they made for this song, where Paul Weller's wearing a pair of dark glasses that look like he borrowed them off his nan, <laughs> you know, like who wore them with a knitted cap <laughs> and a plum-coloured leather coat, you know. <laughs> I mean, the, the appropriation of shirts, suits and ties is just one of the key things from sort of punk through post-punk onwards, you know, across the board in various ways and very specific ways. But overall, it is just a rejection of, like, what seems like a rather trite kind of anti-suit and tie thing that you get from sort of prog and hippie or whatever. So it's kind of represents a rejection of that. It has to be said that Weller's got a proper Weller dad haircut here. Oh, yeah, he? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's proper mullity, isn't it? Mm. Probably here by Robert at Schumann. <laughs> yeah. That kind of shit you just remember. Yeah, all those kids rushing into the shop, uh, holding the record sleeve, pointing at that picture of Bruce Foxton. Mm. So, <laughs> make me look like this. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the whole thing. For all its massive imperfections, it's perfect. If it had been perfect, it would have been imperfect, sort of thing. You know, it's, mm. it's, this is just right. They just hit exactly the right sartorial note for people like me watching so Weller's got a, a red Rickenbacker and he's one of the first artists of the era to have adorned his guitar with messages on top of the pops isn't it he scratched I am nobody mm. into the top right of the guitar body mm. yeah which you wouldn't do unless you thought you were somebody mm. 
Or what you're trying to say is, people keep telling me I'm important. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's what that means. Well, it kind of contradicts the thrust of the lyric, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, but more importantly, more, more intriguingly, he's slapped a sticker with an address typed on it, hasn't he, at the yep. bottom right, which, shall I read it out? I don't yeah. know if I need... Uh, uh, well, it, it, it's Jill... Wag, wag, oops. Bromley, Kent... And as yeah. we all know, Jill was Paul Weller's girlfriend at the time and would be so right the way through the Jam's career because, you know, she's the one holding the white flag on the cover of Beat Surrender. But fucking hell. Yeah. It's a bit odd. One of many things about this clip that you probably wouldn't do the same way today. Yeah, look, the no. full address. Like when they report on uh, court proceedings in the local paper. Yes. Uh, or when they read out viewers' letters on the big match. It's like, and I, I went on, I'm sure you did too. I went on Street View. Of course, I looked, did. looked it up. It's a nice. Google Maps. Yeah, it's a nice first flat for a young professional lady. You know, it's, mm. a, it's a purpose built behind some trees. You know, yeah, nice area. Yeah, they need to fix that gate though. <laughs> it's just as well there weren't video recorders around so much at that time because, you know, that house would have been laid siege by lads in jam shoes and parkers, you know, hoping to catch a glimpse of their hero having a row with his girlfriend <laughs> and having oh, to man. be taken to hospital because he smashed a teacup over his head in frustration, <laughs> as was documented in the Paulo Hewitt book, A Beat Concerto. <clears throat> this isn't a very good song, really. Do you reckon? No, it's all right. I'm arguing with you on beef, that one. Beef, I think, beef, beef. Well, I mean, it's clearly the best track on the new LP, isn't it? Uh, it's up there, yeah. But yeah. It's, you don't get much of a sense from it of what the jam would become. I mean, you do in a sense because the blueprint is very much already there, but mm. you don't get a sense of how strangely subtle and weirdly sort of brutalist beautiful they would become. Mm. It is just the skeletal jam. It's just an angry bloke barking yeah. over this yeah. tangled, wiry cacophony. <laughs> um mm. With these comical lyrics about how he still hates his teachers, you know, even though he hmm. left school years ago. But what it does show you is the base on which the jam's good music would be built. In the yeah, this is already a, like it's an explicitly working class expression, which was specifically suburban rather than urban, because yeah. Londoners always looked down on the jam for their provincial naivety, you know, mm. which was real. But they were really for kids from places like Woking or yes. Aylesbury or Bedford or Stevenage or Maidstone, you know, like mm. it was just council estates on the fringes of medium sized towns, you know. Yeah. And yeah. it's all know he comes from Woking and they think he's a fraud. But his art is in the city where it belongs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, already at this point, the jam are specifically aspirational in a in a sort of quasi-spiritual rather than materialistic sense, you know. Mm. But they're aspirational. They're not nihilistic or hedonistic, right? No. Which was quite an unusual thing at the time. And when you put all that together, it does explain why they meant so much to so many people, for better or for worse, yeah. especially at a time when there wasn't much else to do, you know. Mm. And even at this stage, you listen to the, the, the album that this is from, This Is The Modern World, with its ultimate new wave cover shot of them underneath the oh, Westway yeah. with some tower blocks in the background. Mm. Uh, yeah. And it isn't a very good LP, but even there, it's got stuff on it like Life From A Window, which yes. is a properly 
beautiful song about a very specific but universal experience of being young and alienated and mm. with, you know with no self-consciousness whatsoever they sing i'm staring at a gray sky Ooh, i try to paint it blue teenage blue teenage blue. which is beautiful <laughs> and it oh yes. and the, the fabulous closing line i'm standing on the post office tower so i yeah. can see all there is to see it's just pure yeah. possibility you know and you can chuckle at it but it's great that that stuff's there and you have to write yes. it down fast because once you're 23 it's not going to come into your head as purely as no. that so mm. by that point if you're writing about adolescence suddenly you're writing about a character and it might as well be quadrophenia yes. you know it's good to have a bit of the real thing when it's charming yeah. and pop is the one medium that can accommodate that sweet lack of sophistication and make it yeah. glorious so I, I mean this is one of their weakest and silliest singles but i like the way that it isn't just a song played by people who look like pupils at grange hill it's a song that could have been yeah. written by pupils from Grange. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. and this is it again it's the gauche adolescence i think that yeah. uh, is actually essential you know it's not rather than something you have to tolerate yeah. i'm only surprised it doesn't say flipping heck actually you might as well because they did censor <laughs> yeah. out the swear word didn't they Oh, yeah, it's a bit Scarlet O'Hara, isn't it? I don't give a damn. Yes. <laughs> Imagine how good Gone With The Wind would have been if Clark Gable had played a character called Rick Buckler. <laughs> <laughs> to, to my mind, the best track on the new LP. This and Standards are the highlights of that album. Mm. But to my mind, this is Paul Weller saying, you know, this is the modern world and I'm part of it. I'm not a Who copyist. Mm. This is clearly the Paul Weller who read a review accusing him of being a revivalist and then cut it out, stuck it to some card, wrote, how can I be a revivalist when I'm only 18 over the top of it, and then wore it round his neck to the pub that night. Yeah. Angry. Yeah. Angry young man. It also brings to mind Chris Needham sitting on the bog with his trousers still up after his blazing <laughs> set in the drama hall of Rawlins Community College, flushing the toilet and saying, flipping school, <laughs> and then uh, getting the arse of his jeans all wet. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But I mean, this, this is the modern world is the key, is, is the keynote, really. This is the modern world mm. and I'm making it. Yeah, convenient that it's got the word mod in it, though. Yes. He does want his cake and eat it here. But I mean, mm. yeah, they were obviously accused of ripping off uh, the Who, my generation, period, mm. which they obviously were. But the sound of it is completely inverted, right? Like the black and white look of the early jam is indivisible in my mind from the, the weird black and white sound of the early jam records yeah right? where the bizarre mix on them all where there's a, it's a guitar record but the guitar is mixed so low you can barely hear it um probably because it's so trebly that if you had it at normal volume it'd rip through your eardrums like a corkscrew um and the drums are always absurdly loud like thudding plastic skins walloping you know and this was the same on every song they never did anything different for about three years paul weller played guitar solos that might as well not have existed you know just in the distance somewhere uh whereas when you listen to my generation lp like the overdubs that pete townsend's doing on the 12 string rickerback sound like a plane taking off on the other side of the room yeah you know? and this is considerably less fearsome i guess you you got to thank the producer right vic smith um mm. whose real name or full name was victor coppersmith heaven yes but uh 
it, so that was I mean it's a delightful name but not something that he was prepared to reveal in 1977 probably the worst time in pop history to have that name. it's like you know there's that goalkeeper Bailey Peacock Farrell Mm. He's the he's the Northern Ireland goalkeeper. Like for a time, he he uh, played for Leeds United, and I was thinking this isn't right. That's, like, you can't you can't be Leeds United goalkeeper called Bailey Peacock Farrell. Yeah, but that's their nickname, isn't it? Mm. The Peacocks. Uh, well, that's, yeah, that's true. Yeah, Leeds Peacock. No one ever. It's one of those teams. You know, no one ever calls. Yeah, it's like the Throstles. Perfect name. Yeah, I remember saying at the time, you 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 might get away with that name in Chapel Allerton. But if you're out in town on a Saturday night, you'd better ask your friends to call you killer. <laughs> this really is the sound of a band who have been folded into the punk boom, whether they like it or not. And they're trying to kick on, but they don't really know who they are now. Mm. They pull the right shapes, but they don't want to be trapped in amber. Yeah, well, have you heard their demos from 1975? No. It's like from... Like when they're oh, like wow. kids, they're like 15, 16 year old kids, and they're doing like yeah. sort of Beatle yeah. type pop songs. And the, the singing and the playing is much better than it is on these records. Right. It's like, is they're obviously like really good and just mm. slightly dialed it down a bit for punk? Well, this is it. I think quite a few people had to pretend to be a bit less proficient than they actually were, didn't they? I mean, you know, this whole thing about people that can't play. You know, as always, never <laughs> said. I mean, if people physically couldn't play, then it would just disintegrate after ten or fifteen seconds. But um, you know, I always thought it was just that people were playing in a very limited way, a del- or a deliberately limited way. You know, so to avoid, um, you know, prog excess, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, a bit like Dave Greenfield in The Stranglers. <clears throat> you know. But yeah, it's it's an interesting album because it is the sound of a band just trapped. Yeah. You know, like Nick Haywood said, you get your whole life to write your first album and then three months to write your second. And, you know, the, this is The Modern World mm. is a prime example. And that no other singles released off this, you'll note. Yeah, but it, th- this little slump, this early slump in their career, wasn't it that he'd just met uh, Jill of yes. Romley Kent yeah. and uh, basically just wanted to spend all his time with her? wasn't really into doing the band and so it all got a bit half hour. So you got like Bruce Foxton right in the A side of the next single and yes. stuff. Which is really not it's Yeah, not I mean by idea. this time Well has actually moved to London to Baker Street and the other two are still living with their mums and dads in Woking. Yeah. And Well has put himself about a little bit in London and he's already seen the punks on its arse. Yeah. And he's wondering yeah. whether the view has been worth the climb of being in the jam and uh, yeah he seems to be more interested in his girlfriend than his band not that you'd know it from the uh, fearsome performance here where he's he's doing that usual thing where he he rears back and then plunges forward with his mm. guitar like grimacing yeah baring his teeth like he's hacking the head off a 400 foot serpent you know yes. Which in his head he probably was. It's a serpent of complacency. <laughs> a pretty good start to this episode of Top of the Pops, I'd say. Yeah. But they were on the verge of becoming the real jam. Yeah. It's just about to click in the next year, you know. Mm. And I think part of it, and I mean, I've said this before, this happens to other groups of people too in the same way. But there's a problem for young working class songwriters and performers because middle class songwriters are allowed to do and be anything that they mm. like you know whatever they feel it's their artistic entitlement to go yeah. in any direction they want whereas working class songwriters are always expected to be symbols of and or spokesmen for the working class 
right? Mm. Or else they're somehow letting everybody down. It's like they, they're not granted that same freedom. It's like, no, you have to be where you came from. Uh, mm. When in fact, of course, the jam are good and interesting to precisely the extent that they're not trying to be symbols of or spokesmen for anything. They're just being creative. And they're dull and prosaic to precisely the extent that they are symbols of and spokesmen mm. for the working class. The worst Paul Weller artistically is the Paul Weller with a chip on his shoulder trying to expre- uh, express his, his commonplace confusion and uns- like his relatable confusion and uncertainty in this specifically tough street kind of way, you know, with a pugilistic huff and puff instead mm. of singing and all this yeah. scorching heat and, and, lack of light you know and it's fun but it's not good and if that's all the jam had ever been and if they'd split up after this album as they almost did yeah um they'd be one of the more interesting of the suburban hang around the adventure playground smoking and spitting type bands Mm. uh but it's when he worked out that he could express that confusion and vulnerability and defiance in a subtler way yeah. and could work it into an aesthetic and a kind of cool sort of that's when they went from black and white into color like figuratively as well as sartorially yeah uh, but they always clunked when they tried to be ideological that's the thing yeah it's like partly because his lyrics are really painful whenever he writes general social comment mm. uh, rather than doing it through stories about individual people which is what he does on the best songs you know yeah and also it never worked when he tried to stitch his socio-political concerns into that kind of zap pow this is what's happening sort of 60s pop art vagueness you know that kind of vague optimism so all these songs about commitment and idealism and passion but it's almost for its own sake you know Mm. no definable goal just this hunger for something which wasn't material wasn't religious wasn't politically achievable couldn't really be defined in any way Mm. but it's it's what we're yearning for you know it's uh, Mm. it's beautiful in Mm. songs like Mm. the place i love where it sort of acknowledges its futility and melancholy you know and he just goes i'm making a stand against the world which is like the line you could hear in a million new wave songs but then the next line is there's those who'd hurt us if they heard he's really paranoid and worried yeah but you know it's (laughs) it all goes wrong whenever it becomes pseudo constructive and that's the bit of the jam i never like when he's trying to link expensive shoes and youth cnd you know Mm. and uh, have a cappuccino for international socialism you know yeah yeah and that's sort of pushing on towards style council, I guess. So you've got like this cynical, miserable bastard who also thinks that society is perfectible, mm. you know, and that the best way to start is with a 200 quid haircut that yeah. looks like a novelty hat. Lyrically, it's odd that a 19-year-old lad is still pissed off with uh, what teachers told him at school. Mm. Because when I was 19, I, things that happened at, at school just didn't give a fuck. That was the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only start getting angry about the way you were treated at school when you're a lot older. And it's like, oh, fucking hell, my, my life could have been so much better if I'd gone to a better school and all that kind of stuff. But you can see this song as the prequel to Billy Hunt, can't you? Mm. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. But it's it, he's still 19. That's yeah. the thing. That 
he hasn't really developed an aesthetic yet. Mm. He's still groping around a bit and sort of like piecing together stuff that he likes, trying to just waiting for it to click into a shape that is his, you know. I think that's true in terms of his concerns as well as his, uh, you know, artistic influences, etc. A lot of the strangeness of the jam, and by extension, the most interesting stuff about the jam, is down to the fact that Paul Weller is one of the greatest ever examples of a naturally bright lad with almost no education, mm. trying to inform and educate himself on the fly while churning out songs. Um, and, I mean, there's countless examples of this in pop music from, you know, the Beatles on down, but Paul Weller is almost the greatest example because he didn't write many love songs. He was desperate to communicate every idea that he read about as soon as he'd read about it, right? Mm. Like, as soon as he got into a thing or or an idea that was maybe slightly beyond his capabilities as a writer at that point... But no, as soon as he discovered something new, whether it was Shelley or, you know, Jeffrey Ash and his mushroom-headed Penders Fen idea of um, Camelot and the vision of Albion, you know, mm. it would all go straight into a lyric or straight onto a record sleeve. And there was a total lack of context. Like you would, you always get with self-educated people. Like they read Shelley and it's right, now I know Shelley. But there's no wider understanding of romantic poetry or context of the early 19th century or, or you know opposing critical views of Shelley or anything like that mm. um which I certainly don't mean in a sneery way because I went through all that stuff too I didn't go to university or live in an environment that was literary uh, university of life a Taylor yeah absolutely hard knocks and and tough surprises and the stuff <laughs> that I was writing at 20 is exactly the same you know yeah um but it means that you get all these strange straining lyrics where he's blazingly passionate but just slightly out of his depth and sometimes it's great and mm. sometimes it's hilariously awkward in yeah. a way that you just don't get with most other self-styled new wave poets right who mm. would tended to stick to what they knew and tended to be a bit older than they made out as well yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the the best thing, as well as the Achilles heel of Paul Weller. He's always straining at the limits of his brain and the limits of his vocabulary mm. right, and the limits of his secretary modern education, um, you know, which is why you get all those malapropisms and all those sort of lines like the, the, like in Down at the Tube Station at Midnight when he says, the glazed dirty steps repeat my own and reflect my thoughts, which is sort of a horrible line because it's so overwritten and it falls foul of the basic rule of thumb of one image per image you know um mm. but you can see why you would have thought that was great you can see why you thought that was real poetry you know yeah musically you get something similar to that overreach you know there's loads of examples of the jam running before they are walking right which you usually get away with apart from when they do soul and funk you know well, like they, there's a few of their attempts at soul and fug later on in their career, which sort of make the top of the pop's orchestra sound pretty fierce, you know. But it's the, <laughs> but they had the same problem that most white guitar bands post punk had, which is that they are not from that generation that grew up playing R and B or pure blues to audiences of people who were dancing. You know, it's like Paul Weller was enough of a soul boy that he could he could grasp how soul music worked 
even when he couldn't quite execute it. But Bruce and Rick so obviously grew up listening to Bad Company, you know, and <laughs> live in this musical world of straight lines and regular intervals. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. This is the thing that, say, like indie bands don't understand. You listen to Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones, right? Mm. And we all know how that riff goes. It goes... And every garage indie band on earth someone has that riff and instinctively when you're trying to work out an arrangement the drummer comes down hard on it and the bass player doubles it and you would get essentially a heavy metal track mm. um but when you hear the stones they don't do that bill yeah. wyman doesn't double it he plays something completely different it's syncopated against the guitar and drums he goes like do 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 and you put them together um and that tiny change makes the whole record move just mm. those the fact that the gaps are in slightly different places makes you want to move it makes you want to dance it turns into a dance record as well as a rock and roll song yeah. and it was second nature to that rhythm section to do that because of their musical background but this generation of musicians don't have that grounding in R&B. So everything they play is straight lines, right? Yeah. The best example in the Jams case being Start, which everyone thinks has got the riff from Taxman. It's not actually the riff from Taxman. No. If you listen to Taxman, Paul McCartney plays do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-
he's in a band that, for all he knows, is going to be a flash in the pan and could end any time soon. Yeah. And he's also got a big record company on his back saying, we want second album now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's got to think like that, hasn't he? Yeah, I guess. And also, but I mean, that immediacy is what he's into, you know. Mm. And I mean, look, yeah. I mean, it's anyone, including me, who wants to snigger at the youthful excesses and over-enthusiastic awkwardness of Paul Weller's lyrics or whatever, you know. First of all, you have to acknowledge the brilliance of his of his best songs, but also mm. the, you've got to see those creaky lines and those weird lines that don't work, not as blemishes, but mm. as living proof that this is a kid who came from an environment like where... You know, it came from a school where even the most creative and sensitive kids had to do 15 hours of metal work a week, you know. Yeah. From a, a an environment where you didn't read books, you didn't watch films, right? Transforming himself through sheer talent and application within about two years into yeah. an amazing songwriter, you know. And one who connected with a young audience of, like, you know, football hooligans and juvenile delinquents and bus shelter kicker inners mm. and fucking made them think you know yeah like and the fact that 40 years on half of those people are now carling drinking brexiteers you know with haircuts that look like they were tipped onto their head out of a bowl it's not really his <laughs> fault is it you know there's something no. genuinely amazing about this that the biggest band in the country for a while certainly the biggest band with these kind of oiks used to put out songs that went I think we've lost our perception. Mm. I think we've lost sight of the goals we should be fighting for. I think we've lost our reason. We stumble blindly and that vision must be, be restored. destroyed. <laughs> and it's, it's, but he gave them all these songs that are ripping into male violence mm. and unthinking machismo and social deference and the class system and the grinding down of individuality, you know. And once he'd moved on from the, the, clumsy period that we get in this particular top of the pops he usually did it without too much sloganeering or mm. you know rabble rousing and he led all those horses to water and some of them drank you know yeah. and some of them didn't but it's a genuine achievement and he didn't have any help mm. certainly not from the teachers who said he'd be nothing yeah um <laughs> you know and it's and, and then you get these amazing songs like ghosts and and oh, burning yeah. sky and and start where everything just comes together and it's perfectly balanced and it's proper yeah. fully functioning purposeful pop that actually got into millions of people's lives and minds yeah and you look at a lot of those people now and you wonder what it was all worth or or what it really meant but that's you know it's not paul weller's fault i wonder what kind of friday morning those teachers at Shearwater comprehensive had <laughs> the day after this came out Hmm. Did you tell Paul Weller he'd be nothing, sir? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, in an alternate universe, there is an episode of chart music that's going on right now where we talk about the jam and say, oh, what happened to them? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it'd be like the the members or something. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it, it was really <laughs> close. It was really close, yeah. Well, I mean, by this point, um, they've started work on their third album and they've already been told that songs like I Want to Paint a Cat Shit <laughs> and they better do something about it or they're going to be out on their arse. Mm. And Bruce Foxton's having a chat with somebody from Sounds or something like that saying that he's thinking about going into the hotelier business. Oh, yeah. He's going to buy a little bed and breakfast and work his way yeah. up from there. To estate agency. Yes. <laughs> so the following week, the modern world dropped eight places to number 46 but rallied the week after to number 36 its highest position meanwhile the lp entered the album chart at number 54 and the following week got to number 22 its highest position and the worst performing jam lp during their lifespan the follow-up, News of the World, got to number 27 in March of 1978, by which time they had scrapped work on their third LP, started again, and were putting together all mod cons. And the rest is history. Oh, and I promised the Pop Craze Youngsters I'd read that Bruce Foxen story, didn't I? Oh, yeah. This is a modern world. This is the modern world. Woo! Hey, that's a jam on modern world. Wild stuff, my jam. And let's just think about those occupants of interplanetary craft, shall we? The Carpenters, Richard and Karen together, and they're at number ten. In your mind, you have capacities, you know. To telepath messages through the vest unknown. Powell, demonstrating how Ophay he is with the young idea, reacts to the jam by jumping into the air and shouting, Woo! Hey! Wild stuff from the jam. You fucking idiot. <laughs> he sounds like Bobby Gillespie. Yes. What a cunt. <laughs> I mean, it's the least ever spontaneous jump in the air, isn't it? And again, you can see, like, hey, three, lots of energy, lots of energy. You know, it's, 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 it's possibly, vaguely, it's meant to be pogoing. It's the one person in the studio allowed even to do a kind of approximation of pogoing. But it actually, it's more like Kevin Keegan leaping up to head the ball into the path of the onrushing Trevor Brooks. Yes. You know, it's good. And you can actually imagine Simon Bates, Dave Lee Travis, Noel Edmonds, all round at Travis's house with a pile of autocar magazines where a record collection should be. <laughs> and they're just saying to each other, who does this little prick think he is? Yeah. And, you know, and for once, I'd actually fully sympathise with them. <laughs> I bet when he saw that, Paul Weller had a swig from a can of lager and muttered something underneath mm. his breath. Mm. <laughs> yeah, see, all that shit you came out with, Taylor, Peter Powell's just summed up the jam like that. <laughs> <laughs> that but yeah? this is Powell, isn't it? This is, this is the absolute <laughs> essence of Powell. Yeah. If you ever mm. want to write an essay about Peter Powell, all you need is an animated gif of this <laughs> looping mm. over and over and over and over. I'm surprised no one on YouTube has put up Peter Powell going, woo, yeah, for 10 hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's on my to-do pile now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, mm. It really is. Uh, mm. Does anybody remember laughter? Mm. <laughs> he then goes all serious and asks us to think about those occupants of interplanetary craft. <laughs> as he links to calling occupants of interplanetary craft by the Carpenters. Formed in Harold Carpenter's bollocks in 1946 and 1950, the Carpenters, <laughs> Richard and Karen, were born in New Haven, Connecticut and relocated to Los Angeles in 1963. 
1965, they teamed up with the bassist Wes Jacobs and formed the Richard Carpenter Trio, who won a Battle of the Bands competition at the Hollywood Bowl a year later and bagged a contract with RCA. But after their covers of Every Little Thing and Strangers in the Night were deemed unfit for release, they were dropped by the label. After the trio disbanded and Richard Carpenter was sacked from his job playing covers at Disneyland for being, quote, too radical, (laughs) Richard and Karen formed the the middle-of-the-road band Spectrum, becoming a regular fixture at the Whiskey A Go-Go and supported Steppenwolf before they disbanded in 1968. After Karen was knocked back as a vocalist for Kenny Rogers in the first edition, they acquired a new bassist and appeared on the talent show Your All-American College Show performing Dancing in the Street later that year, which led to a deal with A&M in April of 1969. Their first single, a cover of the Beatles' Ticket to Ride, only got to number 54 in America and did nothing over here, but the follow-up, a cover of the 1963 Richard Chamberlain single, They Long to Be Close to You, got to number one for four weeks over here and made it to number six in the UK in October of 1970. That kicked off a run of 12 top 40 hits in the UK across the 70s, including a pair of number two hits when Yesterday Once More was kept off number one by Leader of the Gang by Gary Glitter and Young Love by Donny Osmond in August of 1973, and Please Mr Postman was held back by January by Pilot in January of 1975. This single, the follow-up to I Need to Be in Love, which got to number 36 in July of 1976, is the lead-off single from their new LP, Passage, which came out in September. It's an LP that they've thrown the kitchen sink at, employing not only the Los Angeles Philharmonic, but all 50 of the Greg Smith singers. It's a cover of the 1976 album track by Clartu, the Canadian rock band who were rumoured to be the Beatles under an assumed name, and is based on World Contact Day, a yearly event which consists of members of the International Flying Saucer Bureau attempting to send a telepathic message every March the 15th since 1953. It entered the top 40 at number 26 three weeks ago and then stealthily scaled the charts. And this week it's nudged up one place from number 11 to number 10, making it their first top 10 hit since only yesterday over two years ago. Fucking hell. This this song, man. It's mm. like a lorry of unboxed jigsaw puzzles has just shed its load all over this episode because there is a lot <laughs> to piece together here. To unpack and to piece together. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's weird because, I mean, at the time, the Carpenters represented almost the absolute MOR norm because they were played mm. on heavy rotation the whole time when my mum was, like, cooking or whatever on the kitchen transistor. The ultimate Radio 2 band. Absolutely. And so, you know, they've got these kind of, with their insidious clarity, um, you know, they'd be sort of playing round, round the clock the whole time. Absolute fixture. Wafting around like the odour of slightly overcooked shepherd's pie. And so, you know, <laughs> to me, they just represented this absolute insidious norm from which even... Burnt cheese. E- yeah, yeah. E- ELO were almost like left field by comparison, you know, well left field by comparison. But you can actually see why people like Thurston Moore or whatever rhapsodise about the Carpenters because there, there is other as kind of Peter Brotsman or something like that in their own way. There's a genuine alienness about them, you know, with Karen's mm. oval face 
and that weird sort of eerie frictionlessness that they've got. Yeah, they're only the band the White Stripes could have been. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> unbelievably, this is the first time we've done the Carpenters on chart music, which is fucking mental because they are a seventies straddling band, aren't they? I mean, you could mm. you could go round someone's ass round about the late seventies, and you could almost guarantee that the singles nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy three by the Carpenters would be on their record shelf on their unit in between Abbott's greatest hits and the sound of bread mm. but unbeknownst to us the carpenters are in the shit richard's become addicted to quaaludes karen's grappling with anorexia the hits are drying up and you know being known as richard nixon's band isn't a good thing by 1977 is it absolutely but you know this is almost like you know there's the straightness in extremists well this is very of its time in that it's mm. another hopelessly optimistic close encounter style 70s idea of the likely outcome mm. of a vastly technologically superior civilization meeting a comparatively primitive civilization hey mm. no this time it's going to play out differently i promise you <laughs> um i've touched on this before when we've covered the mid to late 70s this is when the defining yeah. figure of scientific inquiry was Carl Sagan in a yes. polo neck with an anorak yes. over it, standing in a field going, how lovely is a tree? And the, yes. the dying days of hippie liberal optimism, right? And mm. even as the planet first began to groan and sweat under the weight of humanity, you know, still humanity was so bright and godlike, our destiny lay among the stars, you know. Um, yeah. It, where we could realise our cosmic potential and terraform Pluto or some shit, you know. This is <laughs> this is when we started, like, never mind the, the fucking Flying Saucer Bureau uh, putting their fingertips to their temples and trying to summon aliens. The actual fucking telescopes were beaming out signals into the cosmos yeah. saying, here we are. Come and find us, you know. We're tasty, tasty, very, very tasty. <laughs> yeah, like just... We're very tasty. So certain that the cosmos is a playroom, not a jungle. Mm. I mean, I get emotional at the end of 2001, A Space Odyssey 2, but I know that it's bullshit, and mm. the the yawning expanse of the universe isn't really an inspirational thing. The The... The key to understanding the universe is the knowledge that everything in it is moving further and further away from everything else in it, and the speed yeah. at which that happens is mm. increasing, and that's the fundamental yeah. truth mm. behind all others. But also, just because someone tells you that they're your friends, it doesn't mean they haven't got ray guns behind their backs, mm. right? And <laughs> when your when only previous contact yeah. with someone is them terrifying a cow by lifting it up off the ground with a tractor <laughs> beam. I'm not sure that unquestioning trust is the wisest first response. And also, even in the sweet shop world of this record, these aliens that we're meant to be so pleased to meet sound like Davy Jones. Yes. It's that, that, that's the worst <laughs> bit of this record by Miles, is where it sounds like there's suddenly a, an unexpected cameo from fucking Davy Jones. Because we have been observing <laughs> your earth. It's, it's like he's just smashed in through your window on a wrecking ball, you know, jabbing at you with his space maracas. It's 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's the one jarring moment in the Carpenter's Canon. It's a bit like um, yeah. there's, there's a version of a crap that's the model, whereas it's it's got Emil Schultz comes in who doesn't normally sort of rotate and he goes correct like that. Goes, what was that? What was that? You know, this is the Carpenter's. <laughs> yes, it's one weird tear in the fabric is that moment. But the thing about yeah. UFOs and ufology, I mean, I think that. I knew it was part of it because I was that age, I can be forgiven. But John Lennon was going on about UFOs the whole time at this time. Mm. It was very much part of the mainstream. I would say that, like, it's in terms of ufology and that kind of fascination, there was a bit of a crest, really, the like of which hadn't been seen since the sort of mid-late 50s or whatever. Um, I think we understand these days that aliens, creatures from another planet, would have to traverse billions of light years or whatever to get anywhere near us, and why would they bother just yeah. looking at New Mexico? But back then, there was a <laughs> tremendous... I mean, for instance, another mainstream author was a fellow called Brinsley Poe Trench, the 8th Earl of Clancarty. And, right. and the book I would have read on my holidays that year was his Secret of the Ages, UFOs from Inside the Earth. <laughs> it's theorised that the centre of the Earth was hollow, with entrances to its interior located at both the north and south polar areas. This interior, he suggested, consists of large tunnel systems connecting a large cavern world. Trent's also believed that the lost continent of Atlantis actually once existed, and these tunnels were probably constructed all over the world by the Atlanteans for various purposes. And that basically UFOs are emanating from the Earth's interior. Various ideas like that. I mean, he had another... Yeah, ideas with the, with the, the healthy and reassuring pedigree of some of the weirdest Nazis also believe yes <laughs> yes absolutely yeah but this was i mean you know the, but the, you know he was considered a pretty mainstream author and um you know all very credible ideas another idea he advanced i remember because i remember reading at the time was that the younger generation this rock and roll generation were themselves aliens you know, like <laughs> yes yes c- c- consider it he said you know because you know this would account for their sort of you know they've come here to kind of rebuild the world and it would account for their kind of strangeness and their long hair and their far away air <laughs> the, i remember reading this the top music yeah on the pop music of course and i remember um reading this on holiday in bumaris and saying to my mum hey mum according to this book i might be an alien and she <laughs> said to me nonsense david you're born in a hospital like everywhere else in edgeware which is difficult <laughs> birth as befits a difficult child <laughs> alien and she didn't actually say that she's too nice but i'm sure that's what she was thinking uh, and of course, things like the pyramids, well, they weren't built by white people, so they had to be made by aliens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, of course. But yeah, you're right. You're right. This song is totally of the moment because, you know, 1977, the year of close encounters mm-hmm. of the third kind, but also NASA continuing its refusal to do something for the oldens and deciding to have a nose around the outer solar system and beyond mm. because, you know, they'd already sent out two pioneer space probes bearing plaques about information about Earth, but only last month they launched two Voyager space probes, each featuring a gold-plated copper record containing the greatest hits of planet Earth with Carl Sagan as your selector. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was curated yeah, yeah. by Carl Sagan. What a shame this wasn't on it. <laughs> Unfortunately, the record opens with an introduction by Kurt mm. Waldheim, oh. who was Secretary General of the UN after being a massive Nazi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then there's a load of people around the world saying hello, and then there's a big wadge of world music, animal sounds, and classical ramble. But there is Blind Willie Johnson and Chuck Berry, so, you know, there is that. Yeah, dark was the night, cold was the ground has now left the solar system yeah <laughs> sagan did try to get 
John Lennon involved in the selection process, chaps, but he was too busy lying on a bed out of his tits in New York. <laughs> and uh, Sagan did want Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles on that record, but EMI wanted a cut because they're fucking minge bags. So, you know, if, a, if an alien does hear this record, the only British contribution is the Fairy Round conducted by Richard Holborn, which, you know, essentially makes it sound like a right bunch of foppish medieval cunts to the rest of the universe. So, cheers, Sagan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I mean, another thing around this time, I do remember, well, first of all, I was living in constant fear that the sun was going to explode any second. uh, Because I'd read that somewhere. I was like, fucking hell, you know. But also, yeah, there there was some footage. I remember my brother said, oh, this proves it now. Aliens, UFOs or whatever. And and it was these kind of large, huge, looming lights on a kind of dark, um, you know, on on, on a dark cityscape. And... um, and I was like, you know, for two weeks, I thought, well, that's, that settles it, doesn't it? You know, and then turning mm-hmm. on the sky at night and Patrick Moore going, yes, and these images have been doing the round, and I can assure you that it is, in fact, the planet Venus. Yeah. And that kind of like, you know, I think he was, he was so certain about that. I just felt a bit deflated, really. And I never really oh. reacquired my sort of ufological um, ardour. The thing about the Voyager record is I, I can just see some aliens just getting this and just thinking, fucking hell, look at these backward hipster cunts with their vinyls. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's all mini discs yeah, like, yeah. around here, mate. Yeah, mini discs, yes. Yeah, let's go around there and kill them mm. and eat oh. them. And why did you destroy the greatest medium of all, eight-track cartridge? <laughs> Shall we have a go at trying to call some aliens in? Because I've actually found the uh, the actual words that they use every March the 15th to, to call oh, down aliens. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like yes. to hear them? Yes. Okay. Calling occupants of interest... And pop-crazed youngsters at home, you know, join in with us. Oh, yeah. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft that have been observing our planet Earth. We of IFSB wish to make contact with you. We are your friends and would like you to make an appearance here on Earth. Your presence before us will be welcomed with the utmost friendship. We will do all in our power to promote mutual understanding between your people and the people of Earth. Mm. Please come in peace and help us in our earthly problems. Give us some sign that you've received our message. Be responsible for creating a miracle here on our planet to wake up the ignorant ones to reality. Let cool. us hear from you. We are your friends. Your friends. <laughs> did it work hang on let me have a look now there's a squirrel going down the road well you you don't know what form they would take yeah it's all quiet in lower sydney i have to say never mind next time yeah didn't do it on march the 15th you say yeah no there you are so what do you expect anyway we get the video of this and oh what a video it is it's it's essentially a recruitment video for heaven's gate isn't it this <laughs> just makes me want to put on some red nike trainers and get into a bunk bed and die well when, when do you not feel like doing that let's be honest yeah. i mean we're not getting the full seven minute version but we're, we're getting enough of it aren't we to to, to understand it all. it's all massively cosmos isn't it mm. yeah yeah, yeah. we got Karen and Richard floating about in space, asking us to have a bit of a think about aliens and wanting to be their mates, uh, which is utterly ruined by the illustrations of the aliens that pop up halfway through, <laughs> which are fucking proper H.G. Wells shit-up material. <laughs> yeah. These are not ALF or Baby Yoda, are they? <laughs> no, it looks like it's from the Osborne book of UFOs. Yeah. Mm. 
I mean, suppose we have to wonder if all of this was um, impelled by a genuine fervour to make kind of, you know, interplanetary contact, or was there perhaps a, just a speck of bandwagon jumping? I don't know. I mean, the thing about the Carpenters that people seem to forget, myself included, the vast bulk of their singles output have, have been cover versions. They're, they're essentially M.O.R. Waddy Wadder. <laughs> <laughs> Top of the world, yesterday once more, only yesterday goodbye to love they're the only original songs that have charted over here mm. and their new lp is nothing but other people's songs mm. i mean they even do a full version of don't cry for me argentina for fuck's sake Ugh. yeah other people's songs are scrubbed until they're squeaky clean mm. but i mean look david's hit on this already the, the what is the most uh, sort of annoying and bland about the carpenters is also what's most interesting about the carpenters mm. because it's so extreme the whiteness of it the the like the full cream mayonnaise lava flow of of it is sort of interesting look and also we had a cassette when i was a kid right Mm. might even have been an eight track in fact of the carpenter's greatest hits and that was the only music that we had in the family car when i was young so when we went on holiday um and were in the car for extended periods of time which to a small child it felt like periods of time so super extended that scientists should have given each one a name. Um, the <laughs> Carpenter's greatest hits would go on. So it's absolutely a foundational mm. and, and formative memory for me, sitting in the back of a Simca rolling around North Wales, right, looking out the window at some wet hills and slate and absorbing the sound of the Carpenter's. Before I could really understand or grasp what music was or how songs worked, you know. Mm. At that age, it's just like someone's taking control of your brain chemistry and is flicking levers and you don't quite get it. Like, it's not a picture, it's not a story, it's not something you take in visually or cerebrally, but also it's not like a song song like you sing at school where it's like da, 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 yeah. da. it's this engulfing wave of texture and mm. feeling and mysterious associations and mm. connections and you just respond involuntarily to this play of light and shadow in your brain you know and this was the carpenter's greatest hits right this wasn't bitches yeah. brew or tago mago <laughs> this was not an annihilating sort of overwhelming introduction to the power and mystery of music but it taught me something else as well which is that music sometimes could be that powerful and affecting but sometimes it could be like inert and smoothed off and fundamentally banal to the point where it just sounded silly you know and i didn't understand that some of this music was specifically produced to have no effect on you and to just mm. glance off, you know, and not leave a mark. All these records like Top of the World and Jambalaya mm. and Sing, you know, this sort of creepy Ned Flanders music that they did, which mm. is where the, the, the edges were so soft, it was almost sinister. Yeah, I was just going to use the, you know, the word sinister, yeah, and that there's yeah. something kind of absolutely quite appalling just lurking beneath the surface. And then in terms yes. of obviously their dysfunctional lives, you know, and in a sense, anorexia is almost a sad metaphor, really, for the sort of hyper-perfection, perfection inverted commas there, that they sort of achieve in their music. Yeah, and they left you clues as well, because occasionally they'd do something like Rainy Days and Mondays, or mm. Superstar, mm. or um, Goodbye to Love. And 
I could hear those songs. I could hear they were sickly smooth, like mm. all the others, but they also had this weird power to induce feelings which you hadn't asked for, you know. Mm. And you would immediately recognise at some primal level, even though at five or six you hadn't experienced regret or mm. loss or anything bittersweet you know but even on these records i mean they were very they were still very careful they weren't daring records but mm. the the sonic suggestion of them still prods your brain into producing certain chemicals associated with melancholy yeah. like whenever they do that brian wilson trick of you've got spacious piano chords and a french horn in the distance with loads of reverb on it you know mm. it's really an instinctive response in these songs you could you could feel that something wasn't right you know there was something it was mm. this weird airless music coming out of an unfathomable world of pretend smiles you know and mm. yeah. like hidden horrors behind doors that are always locked you know it was like it was all tied aesthetically and spiritually to this kind of religious american suburban falseness you know and denial mm. of humanity like it's like they were cracking up but they were just incapable of creating any kind of emotional artifact which didn't have a white picket fence around it, yeah you know yeah, and yeah. it's and there's something genuinely intriguing about that you know like mm. and the creepier it is the more intriguing it is and at the time i was always a bit freaked out by the the creamy platitudinous warmth of her voice as well mm. you know mm. the way every track sounds like it's recorded inside an airtight sandwich bag you know mm. something <laughs> mysterious about that it used to re remind me of the other thing that used to creep me out which was the radio 2 jingle singers which is very close yes. to you know yeah you know what they sound like it'd be like yeah, radio two and there's like a slow yeah. harmonized major seventh or something at the end and they used to creep me out because I'd hear it and think, when did this happen? Like, mm, yeah. why does this sound so eerie? What what sort of music is this? And I always got something similar from that, you know, the rictus grin of the Carpenters' music. It was. Yeah. It's the Pam Singers, isn't it? Yeah. 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 From Dallas. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard their version of the emergency broadcast system? No. Fucking hell. Four-minute warning. Not quite. It was a test that the radio stations had to do once a week that just basically said, this is a test, you know, if you, if this was an actual emergency, you'd have to, you know, do this and that. Don't panic. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they did their own version in their own inimitable style for, uh, for a certain radio station. Oh, wow. And, uh, only played it a couple of times before the, uh, FCC banned it, but quite remarkable. That's, yeah, that's worth a link to. Yeah. Video playlist. But yeah, that eeriness. You know, you'd, you'd hear it on Radio 1 and 2 all the time, but you always thought, this doesn't fit, because this is American. Mm. Even though there was so much American shit being played, it seemed a step too far for me. Mm. And we're still in that, that pre-Freddie Laker era where everything American is very other. Mm. Yeah, it's all got that weird sort of fuzzy glaze on mm. it, like the love boat. Yeah. The, I mean, for me, there was always a sort of metaphorical sense of the carpenters of things like Angel Delight and Instant Whip and, and Smash and these things. That, <laughs> you know, I'm not one of these people that sort of hankers for like nature and authenticity and soil and all this kind of stuff. But there's such an eerie lack of that in the carpenters. They are this kind of scientifically created confection of some sort that bears no relationship, you know, to nature that is this simulation of it that's unearthly that has no connection to the earth claw to a very weird band for someone like the carpenters to cover isn't it yeah well 
it's a bit of a shame for Clarto because apart from this, the only thing anyone remembers them for is that some journalists thought it was the Beatles yes. under a false name. Like, despite the fact that it didn't sound anything like the fucking Beatles. I mean, the, the, no. but in the 70s, American rock media were obsessed with the Beatles and mm. the yeah. possibility of a Beatles reunion. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like they're going to come and save us all, you know. Mm. Despite there being no evidence at all that the Beatles would have reassembled and made great music in 1975. Mm. I mean... Yeah, they would have got free as a bird out of the way 20 years earlier. <laughs> yeah, but it became a kind of sport to suggest that certain records were actually by the Beatles recording in secret under a pseudonym. There was a few of these, right? Despite audibly not having the Beatles singing on them, I mean, famously the NME reported on this Clartu business with the headline, Deaf Idiot Journalist Starts Beatle Rumour. Um, <laughs> it says it all. It's like one of the great no-bullshit headlines. Mm. Like, when, you know, when um, Edith Sitwell in the 20s did uh, Facade with uh, Modernist Music by uh, William Walton. And uh, one of the critics, who was not really used to this sort of uh, this avant-garde approach, wrote the headline, Drivel They Paid to Hear. Which I was, <laughs> I always wanted, like, on Melody Maker, when you'd write a review, and it was a, the headline they put on it was always a weak pun yeah. on the band yeah. name or something. Mm. I mean, we should have had something a bit more direct. I'd like to have, you know, written about cast at the London Astoria, and next week's in the headline, uh, shit some morons queued up yeah. for. <laughs> but the thing is, uh, Klaatu never played up to it themselves, but they were fucked by Capitol Records, who did. Yeah. And they lost a lot of credibility as a result because, uh, you know, the record company was running around going, ooh, 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 wonder who this could be. You know, and it's like, oh, fuck off. Mm. But it brings home how vaguely most people listen to music, right? Mm. It's like eating a raspberry and thinking you've eaten a tomato, you know what I mean? It's like, mm. who would hear that you listen to this Clark? It doesn't sound like the fucking Beatles. Yeah, as far as a lot no. of people consider, as I said before, you know, the 70s, the entire 70s were a, a void where the Beatles should be. Yeah, it really was. And of course, chaps, we're only a few weeks away from Brilliant pitching up on Southern TV, aren't we? <laughs> Why didn't he just cut into that Looney Tunes cartoon by saying, I've been observing your Earth. <laughs> Anything else to say? Yeah, it just struck me. I should probably say that I really like this record. <laughs> I don't think I've mentioned it. Despite its babyish insistence that first contact would resemble the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1977, mm. rather than the film Prey, 1977, <laughs> except not as sexy. I just got one little <laughs> shout-out to uh, yeah, a friend of mine, Apology, really. We just tormented each other with, like, physical insults at this time. And um, this fellow, Patrick, his, his ears were just a little bit pointy, so we just sort of oh. jeer at him every day. We've been observing your ears. <laughs> we think they look like Mr. Spock's. <laughs> drove the poor sod mad. You were his friend. I know. Well, yeah, it was banter. <laughs> so the following week calling occupants of interplanetary craft nipped up one more place to number nine its highest position 
The follow-up, Sweet Sweet Smile, would only get to number 40 in February of 1978, and they'd have to wait over 13 years to return to the top 40 when a re-release of Merry Christmas Darling got to number 25 in December of 1990, by which time Karen Carpenter had succumbed to heart failure in February of 1983. And 44 years after the release of Calling Occupants, there has been no official record of extraterrestrial life hollering back at the Carpenters because aliens are ignorant cunts. <laughs> yeah, I said it. Yeah. Come and do something about it if you don't like it, aliens. Come and have a zap if you think you're hard enough. <laughs> Oh, but of course there was that Carpenter's TV special a year later, wasn't there, Taylor? Oh, yeah, you can't you can't talk about this record and not mention Space Encounters. Mm. A lot of thought went into that title. Yes. There was so much of this space shit around yeah. in the aftermath of Star Wars, right? Everything had to be space for about three years, like to the point where you'd see a TV advert for DFS, and it yes. would be like a three-piece suite floating in space. <laughs> and the voiceover guy like, come to DFS, Earthling, and yes. encounter the lowest prices Ooh. in the galaxy. <laughs> and it, for about five years, it was just relentless. Yeah. It was just as the actual space program had ground down to the mm. point where the only off-Earth possibilities that anyone was exploring was like fucking TV satellites and the... Mm. Uh, the space shuttle going round and round, like one inch outside Earth's atmosphere. We've been living in a post-space age since 1972. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, shit. I mean, of course, this is the era of uh, KP outer spacers. Mm. <laughs> yeah, pickled onion flavour, lovely. You've sat through that Carpenters thing, though, haven't you, Taylor? Because that's the commitment yeah. you give to chart music time after time. Yes, yes. Well, this was it. The Carpenters, they weighed in. To the space craze with uh, mm. Space Encounters, which is an, a, an hour-long yes. space-themed uh, TV special brought to you by Clairol Herbal Essences Shampoo. You'll mm. swear that you've got more hair. Um, <gasps> which, you know, inevitably it makes the Star Wars Holiday Special look like Tarkovsky's Solaris. I mean, aside <laughs> from the fact that the Carpenters circa 1978 are about as well suited to a, a wacky knockabout pantomime as Pink Floyd circa the final cut, right? Mm. It's, not, it's just not right. No. And it's like all these things. They've built all the sets and the costumes and they've hired a studio and gone to all this trouble to do that. But then they thought it was okay if the actual script was written by a chaffinch and a dead guy. <laughs> nobody mm. nobody ever cares about writers, ever. No. So what happens is this sub-but-Rogers alien, right, Nickel Rogers, comes to Earth <laughs> and he, he beams down into the Carpenter's recording studio because mm. his race want to learn how to make music with warmth and feeling. <laughs> uh, which, when you've travelled millions of light years to get here, seems an avoidably catastrophic miscalculation. Probably by his co-pilot, who's a mini-skirted bimbo. Um, Suzanne Summers. Despite being second in command of an intergalactic spaceship, mm. she's thick as shit. Um, so... The Carpenters teach him how to make music that 
sounds, how air freshener tastes. <laughs> um, and then he beams them up to his ship where, first of all, Karen and the bimbo co-pilot do it on Harry Belafonte's man smart, woman smart. Yes. It's a good old battle of the sexes moment. Mm. Like just, just slightly undercut by the fact that they spent the previous half hour showing us that one of these women is so calamitously unintelligent that you wouldn't leave her alone in a room with a potato. <laughs> um, and then there's an inevitable romantic duet between Nickel Rogers and, and the grotesque straining mask of Karen Carpenter's happy entertainer face mm. um, uh, before the aliens fuck off home in time for the adverts and we end with a version of calling occupants that really makes you think mm. specifically uh, about what you're going to be doing when it's finished <laughs> that's about it but if nothing else the audience seems to be enjoying whatever it was they were watching when their laughter was recorded in 1965. <laughs> it's the most choking late 70s white American entertainment, you know. Yeah. It's like a, it's a plastic cup with an inch of cold coffee and 12 cigarette ends in it, you know. It's like just don't pick it up and try and drink from it by mistake. It's, you can't get more of that late 70s malaise. It's like being asphyxiated in Norgahide and Gabardine. If you think that late 70s Native American chief was upset about pollution, right, show him this. He'd try to eat his own legs. Just what has happened? What have they done to our country? Pass the fucking firewater. I have mixed feelings about this in a sense, because these days there's a kind of protective tier of creative consultants, etc., etc., whose job is to ensure that things like this never, ever happen. Um, but as well as this ridiculous, they also repress the sublime as well. So I'm not quite sure we were perhaps better, better off back then. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'd rather have this than, you mm. know, the carpet is sponsored by a hair gel company. Mm. Yes, please. <laughs> what if the aliens sent us a record, though? <laughs> Maybe they already have. Yeah, mouldy old dough. And on that jarring note, we're going to step away from this episode, catch his breaths, and come back for another pick at the scab of november 1977 this time tomorrow but if you can't wait until then you know what to do get you sent over to patreon.com slash chart music put a little jingle in our g-string and get the full episode with no adverts right now so on behalf of david stubbs and taylor parks this is al needham and i am panting for you to stay pop craze sharp music Hello, I'm Justin. And I'm Lucy. And together we are the hosts of Plenty Questions. It's a very straightforward general knowledge quiz. We ask you 20 questions, one after the other, five second gap in between, and you shout the answers out. And then you tweet us to let us know how you've got on. See if you can get 20 out of 20. No one has so far, but that's because we haven't started doing it yet. Mm, but we will. Uh, and there's also going to be some fiendish brain teasers, so join us for Plenty, Plenty Questions. questions.